and uh, thank you everyone for joining us today. Again, we, uh, we continue our series here. We've got uh, today's program on special master's appointments. And then after that, we've got, we've got a little something special next week. Um, and then we have, uh, which was the scheduling got a little uh, messed up. So we rearranged things. We have two more seminars and then this series will reach its conclusion. Um, but there may be more uh, limited uh, programming in the fall, so we'll have to see about that. But the regular recurring series will end on the 18th with, with Judge Ricky again. Um, and so without, without further ado, we'll get into today's topic, um, which is special master appointments. Um, again, with, with the COVID landscape, and, and let me enter the panel. Again, my name is David Billado, and I'm a family law attorney in Newton, Massachusetts. We have with us today, Judge Randy Kaplan, who is uh, in private practice now, and she's with Ligris doing mediation, conciliation, special master appointments, case evaluations. We've also got uh, Judge Susan Rickey with us, also uh, retired and in private practice doing, again, also mediation, conciliation, special master appointments, case evaluations. And then we also have uh, with us attorney, family law attorney, uh, Anthony Doniger, who's a partner at Sugarman Rogers Barshack Cohen. And um, we, we wanted to bring Tony in because uh, a, a big chunk of his practice focuses on mediation and uh, special master appointments. So th thank you very much uh, to the panel for participating today. Um, and I thought this would be a good topic to, uh, to do today. Um, as part of our COVID series, because I mean, let's maybe we can take a minute just to talk about what's going on with the courts. My my perspective, and I'm interested in the rest of the panel, is is things are happening, things are happening, but they're happening a lot slower. Uh, again, another reason why people should be thinking about how can I get my case in a position where I'm trying to find ways, you know, maybe bringing in a special master. And we'll, we're going to talk about some of the ways you can you can get that as part of your case. But, um, you know, at least in my cases, we've got very long turnarounds. I know a lot of the judges are doing maybe 10 to 15 hearings a day now because of Zoom and telephone. So then, you know, judges aren't hearing 40 or 50 cases um, like they may have otherwise done pre-COVID. Is, is that what the rest of the panel's seen? Just sort of generally? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So... I think it's a good opportunity, if you can, to think about the ways you might be able to bring a, a master into your case or, um, and, you know, so maybe, maybe that's the first question. From, from the panel's perspective, what are some of the things, and, and we'll get into the types of masters and things like that, but just generally, why why do you guys think it adds value to, to the case aside from just efficiency? Um, go ahead, why don't you go Tony first? Well, um, the advantage of a, a special master handling um, contested issues, whether it's the entire trial or a particular um, subset of issues in the case is from the court's perspective, it provides, you know, this obvious relief and, and help. I think most judges in my experience very much appreciate that. There are a few judges who feel that, you know, it's it's a um, I don't want to I don't want to put it in 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 um, 
economic terms explicitly, but you know, they're the judges, they're there to decide why do we need special masters at all? And I can think of a few judges who actually resent it when litigants come in and say, judge, uh, you've got a really busy docket here. We'd like to send it. We'd like, you know, we've agreed on Joe Blow to be the special master if you'll appoint him. Um, and sometimes judges will resist, but generally speaking, um, they recognize it as a good thing. And from the litigants' point of view, particularly in complex cases, it's an opportunity to have somebody who's experienced um, decide issues that hopefully they have had particular experience with on a, uh, you know, a more organized and efficient uh, way. I mean, special master rules sort of require that hearings be held in, in you know, good, efficient course, and then the proposed findings and what have you issued in a certain amount of time, objections to any, and then the report filed with the court. So there's almost, I don't want to say a guarantee because things can happen, but there's certainly an expectation that the process will move along far more efficiently and quickly than we've come to uh, expect, sadly. Given, given the situation in the, in the probate courts. And I, you know, I think that before even COVID happened, I think that a lot of, and I'm gonna use discovery masters, because I think those are probably the most commonly used masters for a, a limited uh, purpose. So, you know, prior to what's been going on, there was an access issue. You know, certainly if a judge's list was full, you know, just, certain judges, you could put stuff on the list on a weekly basis, but a lot of discovery issues needed to be addressed right away. If you had a deposition or some type of a motion to quash, things that needed to get addressed right away versus, you know, some judges were out four to six weeks for scheduling a motion and that was pre-COVID. So there was access issues. Um, and then there was the timing of even when you were before a judge getting the decision out of the judge afterwards. So you might get in front of a judge and if you had a very complicated discovery order that needed a lot of things, it could be a week, weeks before you would get a decision. So the, the access to the courts and the timing issues were always there. I also feel like when people appointed discovery masters, they're far more organized when they go in front of the master. They have the time to pull their stuff together I think that a master has the ability to be more thoughtful and to spend the time. You know, if you're in a busy courtroom and you have 50 motions and you've got a motion to compel in front of you, um, you know, you're not going to be able to spend the time to go line by line and, and address each of your issues in front of the court. So either you're going to submit it on the pleadings and you're going to spend a lot of time putting all of your arguments into the pleadings or you're going to really not get the full you know benefit of having an argument before the courts because those were put on on regular days where you had regular motions hearing which will probably never exist again but exactly you know what you said david the judges i'm talking to maybe 10 cases at the most that they're able to hear in the day and that's not even necessarily all contested cases, some uncontested, just because of the technical issues. So 
if anybody on the panel, and I'm sure people that are listening, I have listened to a number of hearings because I've taken a, uh, on cases for mediation. So I like to l listen to the hearings from the judges. And if anybody has had the joy of attending a hearing or listening to the hearings and the technological issues and interruptions, I, I, I just can't even imagine by the time they get on and everybody gets their video on and everybody gets their audio on and then they have to go into mass courts and make sure their papers are there and then people start calling in for the next case that's scheduled and there's interruptions. I mean, it's just, it just takes a really long time. You know, so I just think that now especially, and every, I, I don't think there's one court that's doing anything consistent. So some courts are doing regular motions, you can mark them, some are still on the, it has to be an emergency. So, you know, the, the timing of getting in, you know, I would say, I don't know about you, so my average caseload was 120 to 130 cases a week. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you're taking that and you're doing like 50, yeah. maybe, and I think yeah, that's, that's being a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you just think about how few, and not a lot of those were trials. Those were mostly other things. So if you're, you're taking that and cutting it by two thirds, just think about the time it's going to take to get everything scheduled. I mean, it, it's sort of unbelievable to even think about. I think that COVID will help us to streamline family law practice and probate law practice. I hear what Tony and I agree that there are some judges that would look at appointment of a master as a delegation of authority from the judge to a non-judge because a master is sort of a decision maker as to discovery, as to a selling master on real estate, as to a receiver type, you're really making decisions as a master. But I don't look at it as a delegation of authority and I'm not being disrespectful to my sitting colleagues who do. When I would appoint, when I was a sitting judge, a selling master judge for real estate, it's because the parties had been in on their fourth or fifth contempt that the property was to be listed with an agree a broker that they both agree on at a price that they both agree on or that the broker that they chose and agreed on would say but they could never even agree on the broker so they were in and they were in you could miss spring market fall market spring market fall market you had to stop it at some point and the way to stop it because the judge isn't going to go out and list and find the broker that's not what they should be doing, would be to appoint a master, to be a selling master. The same with the discovery master. I, I don't think the courtroom is the right place to see if interrogatory number 27, subset A4D, is a proper question. Right. I don't think discovery is a, can be a fishing expedition. It is much broader as to what is relevant and the judge should actually be seeing. Discovery is a process that should be outside of the courtroom. So a master is a per perfect place for someone to determine, someone with experience, like Tony said, to determine the relevancy and what should be asked and allowed in and what doesn't have to be asked or allowed in. Privilege records, medical records. So I don't look at it as a delegation and I don't mean that disrespectfully. I look at it as an aid to the court because you're stuck. The house has got to get listed and sold.
right? It is going into foreclosure. We've missed three or four selling markets. Somebody has got to pick the broker, get it listed, get it sold, and distribute the proceeds. So I think that pre or post COVID, using masters is a great streamlining tool that I hope the bar will realize that sadly, as Randy says, they're gonna to have to embrace because they're not gonna have the access to the courts that they've always had, but it really should be a big help to the bar. Well, and the way I look at it, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys are the experts, but when I'm thinking about if I'm gonna file a motion for a master, I'm not necessarily thinking about the topic, like, oh, there's a discovery thing, or oh, there's, I'm thinking, is this a situation where the facts are such that it's incredibly complicated. And unless someone really sits down and like thinks about what's going on here, like the details are very important. Like that's the way I'm thinking about whether I need a master or not. Like, are these really fine point details that we need to spend some time really figuring out? Or is it, you know, cause what, what, what can happen is you're in front of a judge. Like I don't have, you know, I can't show up in front of, you know, Judge Kaplan's court and, and say, here's my book. Uh, the 100-page the analysis that my expert did that explains exactly why this thing is this thing and that thing is that. I mean, you know, you rarely have enough until you get to trial. You don't really get those opportunities to have that in-depth, you know. So I, I always feel like that's that's how I look at whether I, you know, might need that sort of help. I think what Randy said or Judge Kaplan said is also important that a master can tell you what he, or maybe Tony said, a master can tell you what he or she needs. If you're in front of the judge and the judge doesn't get enough evidence, right. the judge at the end of the hearing doesn't have the documents he or she needs. But a master who's going to set up the master's hearing before with counsel and say, if you're going to be arguing this, David, you better provide me two days ahead with That's copies to the point. other side, mm -hmm. all of the backup documents. I think a master controls the hearing yeah. a little more than you know when you're sitting in a motion session or in a trial session, session as a sitting judge. I think the master can fine tune it, fine tune mm -hmm. the hearing to get the information and the evidence he or she is going to need and can tell you that before. Yeah, I, I, I didn't, outside of discovery masters, I didn't, I don't think I ever appointed a master to hear a whole trial. Um, I just never had that request come in, but I will say that I use them a lot um, to deal with complicated probate issues so that if I had these huge, you know, and it's a fine line between a master sometimes and a GAL, but if I had somebody that needed to go through years of disbursements and payments and, and money coming in an account, Sometimes I would have the master do all of that because it would take a huge amount of time that, you know, would be four days worth of a trial, not on something overly contested because they are what they are, but it, I needed somebody to sort of corral all the information, which was a huge time saver instead of all the lawyers having to show up for four days of trial just to get the basic information in before we even got to the contested part. So I used to use them a lot, uh, you know, in for those types of things. So they weren't making a recommendation and they weren't making a finding. They were just sort of, you know, I had one that there was 22 years of accountings that had never been submitted in a huge trust case with millions and millions of dollars. And to just have, you know, there was six lawyers involved, to have them have to do a trial just 
to, you know, and of course nobody would talk to each other and they couldn't agree on anything. So there were no chocks with this stuff. (laughs) So no chocks. So something (laughs) like that actually was very helpful to be able to do it. So sort of piecemeal. I, I also had a case once with, it's hard to even picture this, but there was over $250,000 worth of uninsured medicals and extracurricular expenses that there was no way that I was going to sit and have a trial because these parties were, you know, fighting over everything. So I think you can sort of use the master for piecemeal and be creative and then submit the information because there was nothing that was going to be contested in the information. It was just to pull it all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when you, when you did that type of thing, Judge Kaplan, would the master prepare a report? I know Correct. Sometimes. So the master would prepare the report and submit it to me, and I gave people time to file an objection because I think under the rules you have to, you know, give people, uh, I don't know, I usually do 10 days. I don't know if there's a specific time frame in the rule. But I would always give people a right to file an objection and to be able to look at it. And, you know, and they had to have a specific objection. You know, like I had somebody once say, like, I just object to this. So to me, that's not a specific objection. But it was really helpful because then we could have the trial. And then we could incorporate the report into the actual trial that I was having, which then took like three hours versus three days. Well, you don't have to spend all that time fighting about and the lawyers bickering about that data because you're right it, it just is you know but sometimes as lawyers we have right a so you don't have to um and i again i never had so tony's <laughs> probably better to talk about it or judge ricky i've never i never sent a case out to a master facts final you know I, I actually never sent nobody i never had a case go out to arbitration that i had either but i never sent a case to a master and I haven't, since I've been retired and doing this, I've only done arbitration hearings. I've never done a master's hearing, but I think that's sort of going to be the next thing that's going to start happening because, you know, I think it's fair to say that anyone who didn't have a trial in progress or a trial that was scheduled March, April, maybe May, unless it's an emergency, I don't think that there will be trials happening anywhere until 2021 and we don't even know when. And that's only if things don't shut down again and things go the, the way that they are other than people. I know some of the judges, I know Judge Allen, Judge Gargas are doing some Zoom smaller trials and they actually said that they're working. But you know, I think that that's gonna be the rare case that it's gonna happen that way. So I think that the trials are, are going to be out so far. And I think even people walking in now with pretrials are not going to get trials till 2021. So I, I don't know if you've um, either David or Tony has had any experience with what's going on from the court, but that's my understanding of what's going uh, on. Yeah. I mean, I can't even get pretrial dates for cases this year. So I can't even imagine what a trial date would be. Tony, what are you seeing? Yeah, uh, very much so. And and really, people just finding it impossible to imagine how a particular case would be tried, uh, you know, absent being in a courtroom and looking at a witness and, you know, cross-examining the way we were, we've all learned how to do that. Um, I think for some time, uh, a certain 
segment of the bar um, has looked at, you know, arbitration slash special master hearings. I kind of grew in the probate court. It's, it's really the same thing. You, you know, every, you can agree to uh, an arbitration proceeding, but the bottom line is you've got to have a special master appointment because the judge retains the authority to enter the judgment, not, which is different than, uh, you know, in superior court um, uh, under the arbitration acts. So um, certainly many practitioners with complicated cases would prefer to agree on an experienced practitioner or an experienced retired judge who they know has uh -oh. handled sorts of issues <laughs> that, you know, business valuations in, in, a, in a complex real estate empire or something like that. Um, and have the evidence developed and, you know, findings and, and proposed judgments made and then you know, let it go back to the judge for the for the ultimate sign off. And I think it's pretty rare in my experience for a judge having received, you know, a hundred page special master's report and of findings and, and proposed judgments, they would, you know, more or less always accept that. There are I guess there are exceptions. But I just think it's it's part of a a process that's been going on for a while and this is you know this this crisis has just really redoubled people's focuses on the need to have alternative ways to get things dealt with in our court system um, because it's really hard for me to imagine walking into a courtroom and trying a case again I mean you know some some juicy vaccine has got to be out there before I'm going to be happy about doing yeah. that. Yeah. You know? And I'll raise something else because one of my former colleagues had a hearing that, that she allowed people to come in. It was a complicated hearing and there was multiple lawyers and they actually had the hearing and the, and this, I mean, I should have thought of this, but it's nothing I thought about. So not only was the judge masked, but every single attorney and witness was also masked and you can't hear them and you can't understand them. And I'm going to say, I don't know if Judge Ricky agrees with me, probably 50% of a credibility determination, if not higher, and I'm not even talking restraining orders because restraining orders is probably 80%, is looking at somebody's face and Absolutely. watching yeah. them and seeing what's going on. And I cannot actually imagine being able to do this with somebody having a mask up because it just covers everything. Um, and the difference is as much as it's difficult to picture it doing it on Zoom, um, you really see everybody's face here. I mean, it's a very interesting, you know, including your own, which, you know, to me, <laughs> I said, so tired of looking at myself, but you're seeing things. So if you're going into a courtroom and not only like right now I'm here, so figure in a courtroom that you're probably this far back from a judge, you know, being able to hear you and see you. Um, and it's a real issue. And that's going to be at least probably for another year that that's what it's going to be like, that if you actually go to a courtroom, um, you know, that's going to be the case. I mean, I've done, um, 
some in-person um, conciliations, uh, you know, as long as there is a large enough space, um, but it has to be a large enough space for the most part that most people do take their masks off so I can hear them and understand them. But, you know, I, I've been in rooms where I'm 30 or 40 feet away from another person, but I'm comfortable doing that. Um, I think even doing master's hearings or arbitrations in person, if everybody is going to be masked, is exactly the same issue as being at the courthouse. I think also in the courtroom, when if everybody had an in-person, as you're speaking of Judge Kaplan and everybody's masked, the judge's responsibility is to make a record, preserve a record and make a record. And when voices are muffled and microphones and you're sitting farther apart and there's echoes or whatever, the recording is such an important part. A judge yep. has a huge responsibility to make sure that they are preserving and getting the best possible record, first for the litigants, second for their lawyers to protect them, and third, of course, for any appellate rights. But that is an issue if you are muffled. And also the, the spacing in a courthouse. I believe that every building has been told how many persons, including staff, can be in a building. If you are in Worcester, for example, which has five different courts, housing, district, superior, juvenile, probate, you've got to share the number of persons that can be in that building with the other judges. You know, there's probably 20 judges that sit in that courtroom. Probate, just because they want to do, have five or six people in the courtroom that day, there may be only able to have, you know, 60 in the whole building. I don't know what the, what the standards are, but I know that each court has had to have a plan of how many people can be in the building at the time, including staff, and staff certainly have to be there. So it's going to take so much longer to even get a trial, not just because of people being afraid to come in or not able to come in, but also because there are limits to the number of people that can be in the building. So when David, you're saying you're not even getting, you know, when are you gonna get a live trial? I don't know. I don't know. You know, maybe juvenile court has to go first because they need to do their 72-hour hearings. Maybe district courts and superior court have to go first because they're holding, you know, they're holding defendants and they're entitled to a hearing. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, just the last issue on that, the other piece, which is hopefully going to be addressed by Judge Casey or Judge Carey, which makes it even more complicated, is even if you get a hearing and a judge tells you to go, what are you going to do if you don't want to go, if you're not comfortable, if one of your clients or one of the witnesses doesn't want to go? You know, I think there's all those kind of issues that they're going to have mm -hmm. to deal with. You know, I know when I was sitting, um, I did a lot of, like, if I had an elderly person or somebody was out of state, you know, I would have them on video and I would, as long as it was by agreement, I would allow people to testify by video, but then everyone else was sitting in the courtroom and it was just one person, um, you know, that was testifying by video. But the, there's a whole issue that either people are gonna have legitimate reasons and I don't think that we can ask them, you know, why do you not wanna come? Why aren't you comfortable? What are your health issues? That they're not gonna be comfortable coming or they're gonna be people that are gonna take advantage of the fact that they can't be forced to come, that you know, what do you do if you want to go forward? And the defendant says, on a contempt, I, you know, have a health issue. I don't want to come to court. So I, I don't even know how they're going to address those issues. But to me, that's, 
a huge issue they need to address immediately because those are going to start coming up if they haven't already. I want to address where Tony has said the private bar has embraced masters in arbitration quietly before COVID and when they're complex cases. I also think the beauty of a master's or an arbitration is privacy. Yeah. Um, I think that a not everybody wants their financial information, their medical issues, their mental health issues to be as public. And I think that this forum, a master's or an arbitration forum, gives them privacy. Yes, I understand the findings will still go in and it's still, but it's not with the confusion of a courtroom. It's not that you're having even a Zoom hearing and there's other people in the house that could be overhearing the testimony and the evidence, because not everybody has a, a nice quiet room like I have here. There's people that are that have homes that have many more persons that live in them. So I think the privacy, I think these type of hearings, David, afford the parties some privacy for personal issues that they don't necessarily need the whole world to know. Some people love the whole world to know everything bad about the other side, but I don't think that that is what we are supposed to be doing. We're not a punitive right. court. Judge, right. Judge Ricky, that's a great point. Well, I wanted to circle back on one thing that Judge Kaplan said, just to make sure the audience knows what we're talking about. And it, 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 I think it sinks into what she just said. Maybe you can explain this, Judge Ricky, and maybe you did this when you were on the bench. What, what, did, what does it mean to be a Discovery Master Facts Final? I have been a... I have not been a Discovery Master Facts Final, but I have been a Hearing Master Facts Final, where I hear a whole trial with a stenographer in a private office generally before COVID, that everybody, you know, we, we do our pre-trial, we say the number of witnesses, we exchange, they give me exhibit books, etc. And then I write the findings. I'm always very careful because I'm not going to be making the decision. I'm only writing facts final and then sending them on to the judge. It's a huge responsibility to be, for me, it was, and I know it would be for all of my colleagues, to be a master's facts final because you want to give the judge as much neutral information and facts that you can for he or she. They've got to pick up from your 50 pages or 70 pages or whatever Tony was suggesting, the number of pages of facts that you give them, your findings of facts, and they've got to make a decision. I don't know how I could have as a judge. That would have been a leap for me. Not that I wouldn't have trusted the person that was doing the facts final hearing, but you feel such a huge responsibility to the court to put in everything so that you give them enough because you have no idea if that particular judge is going to include inherited property and give it a 50-50 versus put it in because they have to, but not divide it as a marital asset. So it's very interesting when you're a mass, when I was a master facts final in a couple of cases to make sure that my findings were incredibly balanced so that the judge could pick the, the ones that he or she needed to make their decision. I, I, wonder why judges agree to that type of a, accepting that they don't want to hear a 12-day trial or don't have time to give a 12-day trial, but to delegate that and then have to pick up, you know, I may have only put in certain findings and kept out other findings based on how I heard things come in or what my what my theory of the case would have been, but they've got to be really balanced because a totally different person 
that has not heard the case at all has got to write a judgment. So that to me was a little tricky. I know it happens and I've done it and it's, it's interesting to do. Any trial is interesting to do. Ex-judges love to do trials and it's a trial, but it's weird to write your findings having no idea what the, what the, how the judgment is going to come out. Tony, I have a question found? more for Tony or David, like, because yeah. um, I, again, I don't know that I would have minded, but I never had anybody ever do that. Do you find that more people going outside of the court system are doing binding arbitrations versus master's hearings, facts final, and then submitting them to the judges? What, what is sort of what goes on out, out there in general? Well, and has that changed over time? My experience has been, I mean, I, I, when I look back on the, um, the, full, the full scale trials I've done uh, as an arbitrator or, or master, um, it's sort of the same. It's, it's a, a usually complex cases. Um, there's, a, there's a special reason why both sides wanna have this case tried perhaps in private, maybe that's the, the important thing, um, or because you know, they know that the court just doesn't have enough time to really delve into everything that needs to be delved into. Um, but typically, people will ef effectively agree on an arbitration proceeding. And but because it's ultimately going to end up as a divorce judgment, it has to be pursuant to, there has to be a special master appointment because the judge, you, you've got to have the court buy into the process somehow. Um, and ultimately the court has to retain jurisdiction not to enter an order that is a, a judgment that is completely kooky because you know this special master went off the rails yep. so my experience is that people you know will agree on and i always have you know arbitration conferences let's agree on the rules strict rules of evidence sometimes people say no do it do it you know pursuant to a traditional arbitration standard you know and if people want to do that that's fine i always encourage a real trial that's just because instinctively that's the way I am as a, as a you know 40 years of trying cases but um, we then ultimately follow the special master rules that is to say I will issue my findings you know get proposed findings of fact proposed judgments from the litigants I do my findings my proposed judgment I, I submit it in draft they, everybody has, I think, 10 days um, to, you know, request changes, et cetera, et cetera. And then I issue the final judgment, the final findings, in fact, and file them with the court and say to the litigants, now, you know, now your job is to get the judge to enter the judgment. And they still have the ability to say to the judge, geez, judge, we asked him to change you know to change something he's got it completely wrong there's actually no ownership interest at all in the thing that he just you know whatever it is if there's a mistake um and that's the way i actually believe that's the way it has to go technically in probate court 
because you can't just have an arbitrated divorce judgment that right right it gets entered so usually there's this double two things are happening everybody's a, comes up with an arbitration agreement that the parties and the arbitrator sign and then everybody agrees to to ask the court to appoint me the arbitrator as special master under under those traditional rules that's been my experience now sometimes you dispense with the arbitration part of it and there's just a special master appointment and you do it that way and that's fine too i i i actually think that's what's important much less the arbitration agreement but do you do you did did you do a lot that you just had the master do facts final and then submit it to the judge to issue and i'm not talking like just a divorce judgment i'm like that the judge what what judge ricky was talking about that you actually submitted it because i know there are some judges that did that that they would actually get the findings and then they would write the judgment like you know not not just like there's going to be a divorce or not a divorce like right. an actual judgment about support and division of property is that something that you saw that, that's in my experience has been the only time i've done that kind of a thing has been with respect to something very specific evaluation the valuation of a company um, very complicated i remember one case that involved um, a slew of patents and and things like that and you know the judge simply did not want to spend four weeks on this this issue and it was uh, it was only one issue in the case there were a lot of other things and so the judge on the judge's own initiative asked the asked the litigants if they would accept me as a special master to try that issue facts final and essentially you know it was it it became a stipulation of value in the case and the judge then just incorporated it into uh into the rest of the divorce judgment i think it was, <coughs> it was actually a, a, as i recall it a divorce trial in front of the judge on all the other issues yeah but i mean I, that's a rare thing i can only remember a couple of uh, that's what I would think. Uh, yeah. I mean, to Tony's point, I think he's right. You know, the, the, the type of people and the type of lawyers that are open to a facts final arrangement are probably also open to doing arbitration. So arbitration might be better in the sense that you just get the whole process sort of in and done. But, um, you know, I do think now, even for, you know, there might be a variety of reasons why people want to get in front of the actual probate and family court judge. I think because of what's going on now, um, I think it's. I think people should start looking for those other opportunities. You know, if there's, there might be some nuance to your case. Uh, if you can, if you can get that one thing addressed, it might make. You know, even now shaving a day off your trial, if it's a Zoom trial, is probably a much bigger deal than it would have been. You know, six months ago. Um, can I just add where I also think that a special master and I have served as a special master, but now that cases are going to have a much longer start and end time because of COVID and because of accessibility to the courts. But when parties own businesses together or are managing assets together before, during the divorce until the judge says who is going to get that or even after 
I've read judgments and you've all seen judgments where they continue to own things together and they cannot agree on what color my paint is on my walls in my study, right? I mean, that I have been appointed almost as a receiver type master where I go through the expenses, I go through the bills because the wife is saying the husband is not depositing everything, that the mm -hmm. husband is saying the wife is, you know, whatever, often when they have a family business and the wife has been involved in it or, or a spouse hasn't been involved, that's probably even worse because they really don't know anything about it, but they're, they're not trusting about it. But we're going to see more continuing relationships as it takes longer to get a trial completed. And people are going to need their bills paid during it, right? So they sell the house and the proceeds go into an escrow account. What gets paid out of that? If, or, you know, I mean, people are unemployed now and they're having to use assets. And somebody is going to say it's in the ordinary course that they are using assets. And the other is going to say when it's not in the ordinary course, they shouldn't be touching those assets, their marital assets. They should have been frozen by the automatic restraining order. I am seeing appointments in those types of cases as a master to help people manage the assets and the expenses going through their joint ownership times. We talked about this before, Judge Ricky. One of the, I haven't gotten this appointment in a while, but um, a few years ago, I took a handful of them. I was call, I was just I, I didn't know the, I was calling it financial coordinator, and I got appointed <laughs> on a few cases where they basically said, okay, every year. They're going to give attorney Billado the financial records and he's going to do this formula to recalculate support. And that was it. You know, they, there was, you know, a specific task and, you know, that's another, I mean, I guess it could have been called, could have just as easily been called special master. You know, I was set out with, so to your point, it's like a certain function that I had to review certain documents and then, you know, perform a task for them. Um, financial coordinator. That's another coordinator. We have PCs, we have yeah. FCs. <laughs> what, what are some, I want to ask the panel this, um, what are, I mean, we've gone through a few of them, but what are some of the other examples of ways in which you've either appointed a master or, or done the, or you were the master yourself? Could you give some examples of, of situations in which it, it worked out? Well, I mean, as simple as like I've appointed masters to sign deeds. If somebody sort of won't sign the deed to a property, you know, something as simple as that to just perform a function. Um, sometimes I would, not a lot, but I would have masters um, review in-camera review records to make a determination of whether something not necessarily I wouldn't do it with a psychiatric record because I wouldn't give that to a third party. But if there was something that I had to do a balancing test to determine whether I was going to take something in, I might have a master sort of look at that and do a report. Um, trying to think of what else. Personal property division. Oh, my favorite. Pots and pans. <laughs> <laughs> People used to say to me, what do you do with personal property? I'm like, I don't. Right. <laughs> I've, I was going, I've gone there. to how I've gone to lovely homes and sat there over uh, the colander, reminding them master. of my hourly fee does not warrant uh, who gets the blender and the colander, but they need somebody to get unstuck. There's no more the lawyers can do, and there's no more the court can do. Right? They're really they're just stuck. So appointing the master to sign the deed to get the house sold 
to sit there in the kitchen and make the two piles or tell them you're going to sell it. And isn't that silly because they're not going to get anything for it anyway. So it's just, to me, when I was appointing masters or even when I had served as me, it's really just to get people unstuck sometimes. They just need some help getting unstuck. The lawyers have done everything they can. They've been in on five contempts. The judge has done everything he or she can. And you just need somebody out in the world to get people unstuck. When I'm, a dis when I'm appointed a discovery master, I sort of laugh. The attorneys will call and they'll go, we don't need you, judge. We don't need you at all. I don't know why this judge appointed you as a discovery master. I go, okay, I'm just sort of here if you ever need me. And then, of course, you know you make a huge fee, unfortunately, because they argue about every deposition question and interrogatory question. As soon as they say they don't need one, you know there's a reason the judge knew that they would need one. So those sort of make me chuckle a little bit. Although, you know, I've, I've been appointed discovery master a number of times, and I've never heard from the parties. That's in, interesting. In that, you know, the, clearly what happens is they're in court on, you know, one flurry of, of crazy discovery issues. The judge says, I'm not hearing this. I'm appointing Doniger discovery master. Clerk sends me a little thing, and then I just wait to hear from the parties, and I never hear. And they, you know, they leave the courtroom and they just work things out. And that's fine, you know. That's the hope, right? That's the that's, judge's hope, I'm sure. Well, exactly. it's the threat. You don't need to do it's anything. The right. there, I mean, right? I've had that happen with parent coordinators and, um, and also GALs, too. Sometimes just the judge saying we're going to do this sort of incentivizes people to wrap up and make a deal. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe you're just scary, Tony. I don't know. Well, or stupid and then, you know oh my no. god don't you know we're not going to him no I'm well kidding. but it also forces people to have to pay so you know right. it, That's the it big one, the forces people <laughs> to think about how important is it that i get that two statement visas from 2016 mm -hmm. where i've gotten 42 pounds of documents because people really can sort of perseverate over those issues. So if they want to pay for it, you know, that's okay if you're lumping it in with lots of other discovery requests, but if you're really going to go to the court and sort of do that, um, I didn't appoint discovery masters a lot, but I never heard, most, probably for the last five years I was on the bench, I did everything, every discovery issue under Rule 9A. Nobody ever appeared in front of me, but I had to take the time and go home at night and sort of go through everything and do it. But when they have to actually come to court and then not only pay their lawyers, but pay another person, they have to really think about, is that really worth my while? Well, how, so how do, we, how do we actually, aside from agreeing to use a master, how do you, this is very broad question, but how do you get a master put on your case? And, and what are the types of issues that a judge isn't going to put a master on the case uh, by motion? Well, my, my experience is people file a motion for the appointment of a special master. It's usually, if it's, I mean, unless it's a joint motion, there's going to be a problem. In, in fact, you know, I, I think there's an, a very good argument that if, if one, one side opposes the appointment of the special master and the other side seeks it, you know, it, it really muddies the work. But that aside, you've got to do it by motion. Um, 
and you know, a good motion will have a proposed order that will lay it all out and sweep in the rule, the, the relevant provisions of the rule. And that's when it happens. And even the judge will say, hey, what's wrong with me? <laughs> you know, or the judge will say, oh, thank God for this, great. I would like to suggest to the bar, though, if there is an agreement about a master that they have called some of the persons that they are hoping the court will appoint and see as to their availability or conflict, because the court then sends out an order to appoint Attorney Doniger, but he can't because of a conflict or availability or just can't stand whatever it is about the case. <laughs> so you really, you know, you really, you should spend some time thinking about who that master is best for your case and also you should check out their availability similar to when you're asking for a guardian ad litem right don't let you know if you're paying for a service it should be a service that helps your clients together right together if it's a lopsided master that you know is aligned with one side then it's not going to work anyway so you should spend the time offering the judge some suggestions because oh, you're sitting on the bench and you know, you, the first person that comes to your mind might not be the right person for that case because you don't know the case as the sitting judge. Yeah. I just, I just want to get back to the cost issue what Tony was talking about. I don't believe, and I'm not saying that every judge has done this, but I don't believe unless there's an agreement on the master that a judge can order a master and order people to privately pay. I just don't think they Correct. can. I think that the only time I've done it without an agreement is when I mentioned about appointing somebody to either sell a piece of property or to sign a deed. And that's only been after a contempt trial. So I'm able to sort of hook it in to a remedy, whether it's correct or whether I did it right or not. The only time I ever did something over an objection and appointed a master to sell property, like I said, or sign a deed was after I made a contempt judgment. And that was sort of part of the remedy there. Because the master wasn't really making the decision. The master, you had Correct. made the decision. They were not And the master the was just following out, following up. So on they the probably decision. shouldn't be called the master. It was probably sort of some other remedy, but that's what we call them. Right. Um, well, this is whole question of, I mean, how did you, how did you handle that when, when you were on the bench and, you were doing like a sua sponte assignment of a master. Would you assess cost to one side or how did that master get paid? So again, I never appointed a discovery master over, I just never appointed discovery masters unless people requested them. I've no judges have done it when they sort of have discovery issues coming in front of them. And I don't know whether they can. So the only time I ever appointed without a mutual agreement and ordered a payment was under a sort of a contempt oh, yeah. type of issue. And I, and I agree. I don't know. I called the masters, but maybe they really weren't, you know, technically man, certainly not masters under the rules. It was just a body to get the remedy that I ordered and I needed a third party. Um, sort of like the same problem we have with parent coordinators. It's hard. I mean, I guess correct. in some ways the same t it's the same function more or less, just different. You know. So maybe I shouldn't have called it a master. You know, maybe they're something else, and I can't think of what off the top of my head. But it was a very different function than a fact finder. Well, I think, you know. I think though, Judge Kaplan, 
if you are in a contempt situation, it's easy then to assess the cost Correct. against Correct. the defendant non-compliant party. Correct. I think if it's more of a discovery master, you generally say the parties are going to equally pay, but the master can then assess against one side for certain kinds of conduct subject to review by the judge. I think it always has to be subject to review by the judge when you're ordering people to spend money that, that they would not necessarily have to do, but for there being a master. And, and so you I know, think I think, just go ahead, language about I just, just language say, I, I think it's everybody a, equally pays in the beginning. Right. I think it's a very good point. And I actually think that um, I, I know of some appointments, discovery master appointments that have simply happened sua sponte by the court. This is a mess. I'm appointing, you know. <laughs> and that's how most of them happen for me. Right. Yeah. And there's kind of no questions asked. And then an order comes out that says Joe Blow is the discovery master and his fees, he will charge at his usual hourly rate and the parties will split that. And nobody thinks twice about it. But no. uh, Judge Kaplan, I think you're absolutely right. Technically, I don't think a judge has that authority unless there's some, you know, it's part of a well, I think that the issue is, is there's, there's no, not that I'm aware of, I mean, Mass Domrel Rule 53, I don't think, I don't think it addresses this issue in the same way that like Standing Order 117 addresses, this, you know, how it works with the parent coordinator and what the, the court can and can't do. I mean, that's my experience too. The judge will say, okay, you're getting your discovery master. If I don't get a joint motion in a week about who you're using, I'm going to pick someone. You know, that's the, the most, you know, pre common way it plays out in my practice, at least. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless we're just agreeing, um, if, if it's getting forced on us. It's an interesting issue. And, and, and we're, we're running out of time. But the last thing I want to touch on quickly, at least to hear from the panel, what about the enforceability of decisions that masters make? Well, I was going to raise that because I think that one of the things that people don't do enough. So again, I'm just referring to discovery masters. That's the only way that I've dealt with it is that, you know, I think that every time, and so my order that I used to type that had the discovery master appointment, you know, said in it that if a discovery master issued an order, it would be submitted to the court with a motion, or I can't remember exactly what my language was, you know, with a motion, to approve the order and people technically under the rules have the right to object because if it's not an order, it doesn't do any good. It's not enforceable. It doesn't do any good. And you want to get those things in there. And I found a lot of people use discovery masters and then they would sort of talk about it before a trial, but nothing had ever come to the court for approval. So I don't know from the practitioner's end. I, I always found that a huge problem. My order was very specific about it. Most of the orders since I've gone off the bench and served as a discovery master say that I have to write an order and I have to file it with the court and the parties can object within a certain number of days yeah. to right. my order because it ultimately has to be a, the real judge's order, not a discovery master's order. So right. sometimes I write it as discovery, discovery master. Uh, recommendations to be incorporated into an order, but you're correct, Judge Kaplan. I think the judge has to order it because no compliance with what? What I 
what a discovery master says, they don't have the authority to order people. And people still have a right to object. So it's yes. sort of floating out there. What's mm -hmm. your experience been, Tony? Um, that's exactly my experience. When I'm a discovery master, I, I, I'm just thinking now, probably every, every case that I can think of, you have to file an order, whatever your order is, and then one side or the other can object to the order or not, as the case may be. And usually what happens is they just follow the order and, you know, produce the extra credit card statements or, you know, or whatever it is. But if they don't want to, then, then um, they, they won't do anything. And the other side has to file a motion to enforce the order. Um, or have it entered as an order of the court. Sometimes there's a there's a presumption in the in the order of appointment that the order will be entered as an order <laughs> unless somebody objects within you know. Right. I've seen it that way as well. Yeah. Yeah. A practice tip I think is very important when you're doing your proposed order. If you're filing the motion for a master, in your proposed order you should put the language in because judges like proposed orders. It's so helpful. To, to tailor it to your case, that you should put in that either it will be automatically in order when the discovery master or the master decides, unless somebody comes in and objects, or the attorneys have the obligation to bring it in, to bring it forward, and have it entered as an order. But that would be hopefully good drafting in your proposed orders on your motions for appointment of a master. Good advice, absolutely. That makes sense. Well, we're, we've hit two o'clock, so that's the end of our talk today. Um, but I, I wanna thank the panel for, for engaging in this discussion, very interesting stuff. Um, so we've got, I said at the beginning, we've got two seminars left. We're actually not gonna be meeting next Tuesday, the 11th. Instead, we're gonna be meeting on Friday, the 14th at one o'clock. And we've actually got something which is gonna be a little different. It's gonna be more of a brown bag style um, instead of the presentation format that we've been doing, it's going to be an open webinar where everyone who signs in is going to, we're going to see them. You're going to be able to talk. And, um, I, I urge everyone that, that is around to participate. I think it's going to, this, this one's going to be very casual. It's going to be a fun, uh, program. Um, I was able to, uh, I was able to convince our friend, uh, Bill Levine to, to, to come out of uh, retirement. He's going to come and join us, and um, he's going to tell us what's going on with him. Um, as, as you might imagine, if you know Bill, he's got lots of interesting ideas and thoughts about what's going on in the practice these days. He's going to share those. He'll share some fun anecdotes of his, uh, his illustrious career. And um, it's just going to be an opportunity for, for the audience to get involved. And then... Um, that was originally intended to be our final, but uh, our final episode for the summer, but the schedule got a little uh, screwed up. And um, what, what will ultimately be our last session, which is going to be on Tuesday, the 18th, Judge Ricky's coming back. Um, and we're going to be talking about conciliation. Uh, the, the Mass Bar has a great program. Uh, sorry, the county bars have, have programs that I think people don't take enough advantage of that are really great. And there's also the limited issue conciliation. And we're going to walk through those, how you can get involved, how you can access those programs. Um, I've been using them uh, a lot more uh, since COVID. And I think it's a great opportunity for people to take advantage of. So thank you again, everybody. And uh, look forward to seeing you uh, next Friday. Thank you.
Thank Take you, care. David. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Steve. Bye, everybody. Bye, Tony. Bye, Bye Tony. Nice seeing you. Good to see you. Bye, Susan. Take care.